WorldTalkRadio.com, the World Talk Radio Network, where the world comes to talk. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the World Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Human mind, body, emotions, and spirit are more powerful than anyone can imagine, and we will learn to utilize each of them to the maximum and learn to make decisions about what we want and how we want to feel. What a concept, and one we will explore today on the Self-Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. On our program, we'll address who you are, why you're here on this planet, how to go within, how to come to know what you believe, and why. Now, here's your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon, a broadcast from beautiful Scottsdale, Arizona, where the sun almost always shines. And in the summer, it does double duty. And we're in summer. Today on the Self-Improvement blog, you'll find a new article about paying more and getting less. Uh, If you wonder what that has to do with self-improvement, you know, go read the article. I think it's something that all of us are experiencing right now, and I found a need to talk a little bit about it. But the important thing is a review of the book, Peaceful Re- Revolution, as well as a picture and bio of our today's guest. There's also a video of Paul Chappelle on the blog today, so I encourage you to go to the blog, maybe even now while you listen, stay a while. It's the selfimprovementblog.com. We change the information, or a lot of the information every day, so it's good to come back um, daily if you can. It's always been interesting to me that talking about world war is acceptable, and we just beat war to death in the movies and on TV. There's always something going on about a war. It's acceptable, but talking about world peace brings up a lot of what I call consternation. Talking about peace invokes a violent reaction in some and amusement in others, like it's either the worst thing that can happen or, you know, it's too far-fetched to even discuss it, so why bother? Today's guest dares to write about it and to talk about it. He has a newly released book, Peaceful Revolution. Think about those words, peaceful revolution. It sounds like an oxymoron, but it really isn't. Uh, Paul Chappelle boldly asserts that peaceful revolution is possible, but it may not be quite what you think. Paul Chappelle graduated from West Point in 2002. He served in the Army for seven years, was deployed in Baghdad in 2006, and left active duty in November 2009 as a captain. So he's been there, done that. He knows what war is like. He's the author of Will War Ever End? A Soldier's Vision of Peace for the 21st Century and of the End of War, How Waging Peace Can Save Humanity, Our Planet, and Our Future. He currently serves as the Peace Leadership Director for the Nuclear Age Peace Foundation 
and speaks throughout the country to colleges, high schools, veterans groups, churches, and activist organizations. He lives in Santa Barbara, California. You can see his video on the self-improvement blog, and it is my pleasure to welcome you, Paul, to the self-improvement show. Oh, thank you for having me, Irene. I really appreciate it. Oh, I'm absolutely delighted. I, you know, picked up your book with a little skepticism and found it one of the most delightful reads I've had in a long time. And we'll talk much more about that as we go. Now, tell us a little bit about yourself. I know you grew up in a multiracial family. I know you had a father who was emotionally traumatized by war, and you had to suffer those consequences. So tell us about growing up in that family and what led you to go to West Point and then on to what you do now. Yeah, I was raised in Alabama. My parents moved there when I was a year old. My father, he was in the Army for 30 years, and he had a lot of... Alabama's tough on multiracial kids. Yeah, back then, I think things have improved. But back then in the 80s, I mean, it was better in the 80s than it was in the 50s, but it was still problematic. And I think that that shaped my perception of racism and progress, seeing how the Civil Rights Movement had made things better. Not perfect, but definitely better. And seeing how war had traumatized my father also had a big impact on me and started me questioning these things when I was pretty young. And some of your conclusions are quite fascinating. Now, I want to state right up front how much I admire you for making yourself so transparent and so vulnerable in this book. Um, it, It made the book very personal to me and very compelling and I know it takes a great deal of courage to lay yourself wide open like that. Um, so I, you know, you can comment on that if you want to. But <laughs> I just want to say thanks for doing it. Oh well, I think that we have to be transparent in this era, and I think that when we show who we really are, that's the best way to communicate a lot of these realities. And I, um. I've been influenced by people who revealed parts of them themselves, which which gave me guidance in life and helped me. And I think that uh, I think you just have to be true to who you are. And it, when we we start to get into trouble and we aren't true to who we are, and we try to misrepresent who we are. That's where we really start to get in all signs of trouble. And as long as we're true to who we are, we'll, we'll for the most part be okay. I could agree with you more. You know, a lot of people make the assumption that human beings are naturally violent and that war is inevitable. And actually, some of us grew up believing that, um, especially if you grew up where you listened a lot to, I hate to say this, biblical teachings, because they, they teach you that man is evil. You know, there's none righteous, no, not one, that kind of thing. And it talks a lot about war in the Bible. So how did you come to, to think, how did you come to refute this? You know, because it's, it's just an interesting, um, well, I want to get in and talk more about your muscles, but it's interesting how you came to this conclusion. So you know, how did you get from growing up to believe, and, and in your family, there was a lot of violence and a lot of anger and a lot of war. Yeah, so, I, I think there's this different interpretations biblically. Martin Luther King Jr., he believed we were naturally good. And what he said was that we have, Martin Luther King Jr. said we have the greater capacity for goodness, but we also have the potential for evil. 
So, and I totally agree with that. Yeah, and Martin Luther King Jr., I mean, he was, um, he was biblically minded, and he believed that original sin basically meant that we, we kind of yearn toward goodness the way that plants yearn toward sunlight, but we have this inherent potential to fall and to commit evil. But that's not, we're not just born evil. And it's like Sister Helen Prejean, she's a, a Catholic nun, you know, she said she's never met an evil baby before. And, you know, she says we're not born evil. So there's various interpretations. But what I look at, which I think is the most conclusive evidence, is military history proves overwhelmingly that we're not naturally violent. And just to give you a quick example, during World War One, World War Two, and the Korean War, there were more soldiers put off the there were more soldiers pulled off the front line because they had mental breakdowns than were killed in all the wars. So if you look at World War II, there were 504,000 American soldiers pulled off the front line because they had nervous breakdowns. And war traumatizes people. It's a common saying. Even people who advocate war say that war is hell. And, we, and this brings up a question for me. You know, I haven't heard those figures before, and those are fascinating. And the right. Second World War has been so glamorized you know, uh, it, it's sort of held up to the young young boys as you know something they they missed. Right. Um, it's it's an interesting. Why did why don't we hear of this? Well, I think it's just misinformation. And again, I'm referencing military studies. There were 504,000 American soldiers pulled off the front line due to psychiatric casualties. There's a writer, Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman, who writes a lot about this. And the Army did a study during World War II where one half of the veterans in intense combat admitted to urinating in their pants in combat, and the quarter admitted to defecating in their pants in combat. And Lieutenant Colonel Dave Grossman says, you know, have you ever seen a war movie where the hero urinates or defecates in his pants in combat? But that, and, it, they, they, and our society doesn't betray that. Another example, too, is there were two medical doctors, Swink and Marchand, in World War II, and they did a study. They were medical doctors. One was a D-Day. And they did a study that found that after 60 days of sustained, continuous day and night combat, 98% of soldiers become psychiatric casualties. And the 2% who don't become psychiatric casualties, the reason 2% don't go insane from war is because they were already insane before they went to war. They were aggressive psychopaths. And I think the evidence is pretty overwhelming in the sense that we know war traumatizes people. If there was a draft today in America and we, they were pulling kids from college to go fight in Afghanistan, people would be rioting. And I think that if you look at ancient history, you see even more evidence of the trauma that war can cause in human beings. Well, it's interesting that we, we don't hear this side of it. In your book, In Peaceful Revolution, you say, what makes war propaganda so dangerous is not in its lies, but in its half-truths. Is this the kind of information you mean, you, you t you're talking about? Is this, what, what do you, exactly do you mean by that statement? Yeah, what I mean is that basically if human beings were naturally violent, why would war traumatize us? If human beings were naturally violent, why wouldn't we go to war and become more mentally healthy? Why wouldn't people go to war and yeah. after, after a year they're just more mentally healthy because they, they've been to war for a year? And why, you know, if we were naturally violent, you'd take people away from war and they have all sorts of mental problems. And what I mean by a half-truth is more dangerous than a lie is a lot of the propaganda contains half-truth. And when you have an element of truth, that can actually be more dangerous than outright deception because when it has an element of truth, it's actually harder to pick out the deception. And I can think, you give me some examples of some half-truths that you're aware of? Yeah, I think there's a lot of them. I think, 
Oh, I think there's a lot of them, too. I think maybe one of the most common ones is terrorists or dangerous people who are trying to kill the American people. Therefore, we have to invade the Middle East. So there is some truth there. There are people in the Middle East who hate us and want to kill us. But what they don't talk about is the causes, the reasons, the other ways of resolving those causes and reasons. And so there is an element of truth there. And uh, another half-truth might be illegal immigrants are coming to America, taking our jobs, therefore we have to kick them all out. You know, there, there is an element of truth that there are some illegal immigrants coming to America and taking jobs Americans could otherwise have, but there's a lot of truth that's missing from that argument about why is there a lack of jobs in our economy, why are these people feeling the urge to come over here and leave their families when they could be staying with their families at home, but there's a lack of job opportunities where there are. What's causing that? So all these deeper underlying issues and truths are completely ignored, and this small element of truth is emphasized, which confuses people very, very, very uh, greatly. Well, we don't get all the facts either. I mean, um, if you look at it, there's a, there's a fairly large bias in the news media, and we don't always hear all of it. Right. Yeah, so, no, it's... It's always refreshing to find somebody who will give you the whole story and let you make your own decision, make your own conclusions, but you you find that rarely. Now, let's talk a little bit about your education at West Point. You said it it didn't just prepare you to become a soldier, but also a warrior for peace, and I found that a surprising statement, but a very comforting statement. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, West Point gave me a lot of the skills and tools and ideals I used to wage peace, the discipline, the training, the public speaking skills, communication skills. And I think a lot of the ethical training and ideals I learned there, I think, prepared me for waging peace. And I think people might find that surprising. But West Point, I think there's a lot of misconceptions about what, what West Point really is. Tell us what. Tell us a little bit more about West Point because I think we all labor under some, you know, false, conclu- false um, ideas about the fact that you pro- you'd probably just study about war and um, attack and you know, yeah, killing. Well, well, West Point was founded in 1802. It was founded by Thomas Jefferson, and West Point originally was an engineering school. And its purpose was to train people to be in the Corps of Engineers. Its purpose wasn't to train people to fight in combat. The Army had a specific branch called the Corps of Engineers, and they weren't combat soldiers. So the purpose of West Point wasn't to train people to fight in the regular Army or the militia. It was specifically to train people to be combat engineers, or to be engineers building all sorts of structures for the country and for the military. And the first superintendent was the... I think he was the grandnephew of Benjamin Franklin. He was re- related to Benjamin Franklin, and he wanted West Point graduates to be men of science. That was his big emphasis. They, uh-huh. He wanted them to be men of science. So then West Point, its focus was engineering. It started to transition to teaching people to be in the regular army and in the militia. And then when General MacArthur became superintendent in 1919, he wanted West Point to be a liberal arts college. So he wanted West Point cadets to study politics, philosophy, poetry, history, law, ethics, all these different multifaceted subjects, because he realized in the future soldiers have to be very well prepared to deal with social, political problems as well as military problems. So he turned West Point into a liberal arts college. 
So when I was at West Point, it was a combination of an engineering school and a liberal arts college. You had to minor in engineering no matter what your major was. Ah. There were a wide variety of mandatory classes. The mandatory classes that all cadets had to take included calculus, physics, chemistry, calculus one and two, statistics, poetry, philosophy, international relations, law, uh, political science, history, wide variety of mandatory courses. And I think that it is loyal to those democratic ideals of freedom of speech. In 2006, West Point invited Noam Chomsky, a critical, mm. a critic of American foreign policy, to speak about just war theory and whether the Iraq war was a just war. And they also invited Bill Moyers and Al Franken to give lectures. And so, actually, you get a well-rounded liberal arts education. Exactly. And, yeah, and it's time for us to go to break, Paul. But when sure. we come back, I want to talk about those courses that taught you about soldiering and those that ta- taught you about becoming a warrior for sure. peace. Sure. This is Irene Conlon for The Self-Improvement Show Stay saying, stay tuned because we'll be back with more from Paul Chappelle. Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network by keeping up with us on Twitter. You can find us at World Talk Radio. Are you looking to improve your personal or professional branding? What about your business? We've got a program that will help streamline your image management. Tune in to Marketing Matters, hosted by Yasmeen Anderson-Smith. Your business and public image is important to your customers' perceptions. And in this day and age, how you market yourself or your company can make the difference between running a successful business and shutting it down. Marketing Matters can be heard every Wednesday at noon Eastern Time, 9 a.m. Pacific, on World Talk Radio Variety. Hey, did you know Voice America has partnered with the Kidstar Network to expand their reach through Voice America Kids? Voice America Kids will feature talk radio for kids, by kids, along with special event programming and live broadcasts. Each program is conveniently archived for on-demand listening at any time. Please check our archives for the latest events and happenings on voiceamericakids.com. Listen. The world is talking. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the self improvement blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the self improvement show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the self improvement show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Paul Chappelle. We were talking before the break about his education at West Point. Um, I'd like to ask him now to talk us talk to us a little bit about what he learned about soldiering and also what he learned about that that helped him become a warrior of peace. Paul, tell us a little bit about that part of the West Point education. Yeah, I think there's misperceptions about how you get people to fight reliably in combat. And I think a lot of people think that it relies on bullying. 
And General MacArthur, when he came to West Point in 1919, one of his biggest initiatives was to get rid of hazing. And hazing today is very popular in many fraternities around the country, but he had a big incentive and drive to get rid of hazing because he thought hazing was incredibly destructive, where you demean and humiliate people. And he said that during World War II, there were many military commanders shot in the back by their own soldiers because they were brought up with the mistaken belief that bullying was leadership. And so if you think about bullying, right, bullying is typically, think about it from a practical practical perspective, why bullying isn't practical in the military. Think about it from a practical perspective. When you think about bullying, it's usually three or four people bullying one, one person. Right. A, a weaker person. You very rarely, I've never seen one smaller person bullying three or four bigger people. No, it doesn't happen, does it? Yeah, so if you're a military commander and you have 10,000 soldiers following you and you're going to try to bully them, and you're going to try to bully 10,000 people trained to kill, I mean, they could easily turn on you and kill you, especially if they feel like you're putting them at risk. And during the Vietnam War, um, it's estimated that about 20% of the officers killed in the Vietnam War on the American side were killed by their own soldiers. And I think there were, uh, I think, 1,013, around 1,013 documented cases of soldiers even either assassinating or attempting to assassinate their military commanders. Ah. So... The way you actually get people to fight is you have to put their well-being above your own. If your military commander takes care of you and puts his well-being above your own and you feel that he will risk his life to protect you, it's like Sun Tzu says in The Art of War. Sun Tzu says in The Art of War, he says, treat your soldiers as your beloved children and they will follow you into the deepest valleys. Treat your soldiers as your beloved sons and they will follow you even unto death. And so in the U.S. military, there's, there's... emphasis on leading by example. You never ask your soldiers to do what you were unwilling to do. The highest-ranking soldiers are supposed to eat last, while the lowest-ranking soldiers eat first. And if you look at the ancient commanders, Alexander the Great, Xenophon, Hannibal, they would fight at the most dangerous point of the battlefield. They would live like their soldiers. They would sacrifice for their soldiers. And the idea is to develop a bond between you and your soldiers where they view you kind of like their father and they're willing to die for you because you take care of them and they care about you. This bond of empathy between them. And that is the most reliable way to get people to fight effectively in combat. And what you end up, though, with that kind of ethos, General Wesley Clark, he's a famous West Point graduate, four-star general. General Wesley Clark said that the U.S. military is the purest application of socialism in the world. And when you hear about the the military is very socialist in nature, how it emphasizes selflessness and sacrifice and service. And the average CEO, the the New York Times columnist Christoph, he wrote an article about how the average CEO in America makes around 300 times as much as the lowest paid worker in his company. But the top-ranking general makes around 10 times as much as the lowest-ranking private. So there's a much smaller pay pay gap between the highest-ranking general and lowest-ranking private, around 10 times, versus a CEO and a worker, which would be around 300 times. And so you have those kind of ideals, and you learn that leadership is service. And it's like Jesus in the Bible. Jesus washes the feet of his disciples. He doesn't have them wash his feet. He washes their feet. And I think in our culture, we have this emphasis on selfishness, greed, bullying, you know, controlling people. The purpose of leadership is to control people, not to serve the people that are under you. 
And if you look at the ethos of the military, if you look at Jesus washing the feet of his disciples, you see a completely different view of leadership, where leadership is service, sacrifice, selflessness, and putting your well-being above other people. Exactly. You, you say in your book, you make this statement in your book, if citizens are complacent, do not be surprised if the victories our ancestors worked so hard to be so hard for began to slip away. If citizens do not use participation to protect the peace and justice our ancestors struggled to achieve, do not be shocked if slavery and the oppression of women begins to reemerge in new forms. I thought that was a very powerful statement. What kind of participation do you mean? Yeah, what I mean by that is I mean that when you achieve a victory for justice or liberty or democracy, like, for example, the civil rights movement or the women's rights movement, when you achieve that kind of victory, such as women's right to vote or civil rights, it's not like the victory is etched in stone. You have to look at the victory more like a garden. If you have a garden and you do not tend the garden and nurture the garden, the garden will die. So if you have women's rights, that victory has been achieved. Civil rights has been achieved. But if you don't nurture it and tend to it, it can be taken away from you. So after we've achieved these victories for justice, such as women's rights and civil rights, they're not over with. We have to think of them like a garden. We have to nurture them and tend to them. And you do that through democratic action, through being an active citizen, through being aware, through participating in the political process through forcing our political leaders to uphold these victories and further justice in our country and around the world. And, and that th requires a much more than just going to vote. Right. It requires much more because if you look at some of the greatest achievements for justice in American history, we're taught, unfortunately, that voting is the end-all, be-all of citizenship. But if you look at some of the greatest victories for justice in American history, they were achieved by people with little to no voting rights. I mean, women could not vote. Exactly. And look at what they achieved. They got the right to go to college. They got the right to own property. Remember, 200 years ago, they couldn't go to college. They couldn't own property. They couldn't have a bank account. They couldn't vote. They got all those rights without having the right to vote. And if you look at civil rights, black people in the South had little to no voting rights. And look at what they achieved without the right to vote. So it shows that voting is just one tool in a democratic toolbox. And there's so much more we can do. And sometimes it's not even the most important one. You know, my husband, my ex-husband was in politics, and, you know, basically the action came before the candidates were selected. And he said, if you don't get involved down at that level, you have a choice between Mickey Mouse and Donald Duck. No offense to Mickey Mouse or Donald Duck, but, you know, it's pretty much the truth. If you're not involved in your community, your city, your state, you know, you're not going to have too much influence on a national level either. Right. right. Um, it's, it's just the way it is. In your book, you, you say that we need to develop skills that will help us solve our national and global problems. Let's talk about these skills. I don't even really know where to begin on this. So, you know, where's your beginning place when you talk about these skills? I guess the most important, one of the basic skills is you have to be able to persuade people. You have to be able to transform how people think. Where 200 years ago, if any American pol I mean, right now, if any American politician today said that we should bring back slavery, bring back segregation... Oh. Yes. Hello? Yeah. Oh, can you hear me? Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, yeah, the most important skill, or one of the most important skills, is we have to be able to persuade people and change how they think. No, I was just reacting to 
my own reaction when you said if any politician oh. thought we should bring any of those yeah. back, I'm thinking, yeah. oh my goodness, well, think about we'd have it. another revolution. Yeah, well, think should. about if any American politician today said, imagine if any politician today said that we should bring back slavery, bring back segregation, women shouldn't be able to vote or own property. People would look at him like he is insane. I mean, that would be political suicide. People oh, in a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. But think about that. 200 years ago, that's how almost every American thought, and that's how virtually every politician spoke. So what happened? Why 200 years ago, that's how politicians spoke and they got reelected, and that's how most people thought back then. But now, look at the dramatic change, where if you say that now, people look at, like, look at you like, what planet are you from? And I think if we could dramatically change attitudes toward oppression of women, slavery, segregation... Why can't we dramatically change attitudes toward nuclear weapons, war, environmental destruction? But you have to be able to persuade people, transform how they think about these very controversial issues. And we have evidence that this has worked in the past. And how do we continue to do that toward other controversial issues, such as war, nuclear weapons, environmental destruction, that also threaten human survival? Um, that's a good question. Yeah. What besides dialogue, open dialogue, honest dialogue, persuasive dialogue do we need? Yeah, I think that's one thing I focus on a lot. I teach a workshop in the summer, and the book I'm writing now, I'm almost finished with the Art of Waging piece. It focuses a lot on persuasive dialogue. And if you look at Frederick Douglass or Mark, Martin Luther King Jr. or the women's rights movement, they were extremely persuasive. And you can't persuade everybody. I mean, there's no way to persuade everybody. When I give but my, you don't need to persuade yeah, you everybody. Don't need to, when I give my talks, I, I say, uh, when I give my talks, I often say, you know, is every single man in America convinced that women should get the right to vote? And I say, there's still people in America who don't think women should have the right to vote. But if a man today tries to prevent a woman from voting, he'll get arrested. So you have to transform public consensus. You have to transform attitudes to a point where it becomes a new social norm and it becomes a new law. So there are going to be those few people who don't get it, but now you have laws in place to protect the population from those few people who don't get it. And one thing I do write a lot about now is how do you actually persuade people about controversial issues. And you do it very gently in the beginning, don't you? Well, it's, it's interesting. It's, it's um, There's several techniques for doing it. I mean, one way to do it is you have to really look deeply at human nature. And every animal on the planet requires certain physical conditions for their survival, food, shelter, safety. But human beings also require certain psychological conditions for our survival, such as a worldview. If a human being loses their worldview, they will go insane. We need a worldview to maintain our sanity. And if you threaten someone's worldview, they will, re they will react to you as if you were threatening their physical body. That's why when you talk about politics and religion, you could get into a fist fight with somebody. I mean, people, if you talk about politics and religion, people can get, become extremely aggressive. And if you threaten people's worldview, they might try to kill you. When Galileo said the earth grows around the sun, oh yeah, it threatens the worldview, and Catholic Church says either be quiet or we're going to kill you. Socrates starts questioning things. The Athenian government says, we're going to kill you. Martin Luther King Jr. is questioning things. Gandhi's questioning things, trying to change the world. People kill them. So when you threaten someone's worldview, they'll react as if you were threatening their physical body. And it it's time for us, sure. Paul, to go to break again. When we come back, I want to talk more about a worldview. Sure. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Paul Chappelle, saying stay tuned. We'll be right back with more.
Find out what's happening on the World Talk Radio Network. Find out about new shows, featured guests, and what's up this week. Find us on Facebook by searching keyword World Talk Radio. World Talk Radio presents a new kind of health awareness talk show, the Sharon Kleina Hour, health, environment, and the power of water. Show host Sharon Kleina interviews leading scientists to discover how each of us can become proactive in protecting our personal health environment in an increasingly unhealthy world. Every show offers new information that could save your life. The Sharon Kleina Hour is health from an environmental perspective, your ultimate source for a personal environmental lifestyle. Mondays at 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Step up to the microphone. View the finalists right now on VoiceAmericaKids.tv. America's next great star is waiting to be discovered. Step up to the microphone is an exclusive presentation for VoiceAmerica.tv, where you can see and hear America's next top child star. The program is hosted by Voice America's own Cassie Frazier, and new episodes will be available every week exclusively at VoiceAmericaKids.tv. You can say you saw them at the beginning of their superstar career. Tune in to VoiceAmericaKids.tv. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Paul Chappelle. We've been talking about um, waging peace or a peaceful revolution, actually. Paul, before we get into talking more about a worldview, tell us how people can find you, how they can find your book. It's on, you know, the review is on the Self-Improvement blog. They can order it right there, but how else can they find it and you? Yeah, I, guess, I guess the easiest way is my website is peacefulrevolution.com. Again, that's peacefulrevolution.com. And there's a link there to the website for the nonprofit I work for, and there's more information about our workshops, and people can email me there, too. And again, that's peacefulrevolution.com. Are you looking for volunteers around the country to help, or what do you need? Yeah, any way people would like to help, we'd greatly appreciate that. And If you have a nonprofit, you must be welcoming contributions to continue your work. Yeah, we, need, we rely on contributions to exist. So anything people can afford is always immensely appreciated and my my gut feeling is from reading your book that any contributions you receive are going to be used wisely right. and used for the work that's yes. just what my gut tells me and I go with that yeah and there's Let, full, oh sorry go ahead, go ahead. Go oh, ahead. I was thinking there is transparency we, we release our annual reports and we try to you know I mean we, we really appreciate people's donations we try to do the most with, with what we're given so how can they how can they reach you to do that through peacefulrevolution.com? Yeah, that's correct. And they can contact me there and they can go to my the nonprofit I work for. They can go to their website as well from there. Okay, we were talking a little bit about world view and the world view is 
being changed because of the internet. Talk a little bit about worldview and and what it means to us these days when when we have so much more contact with people around the con- around the around the the planet. Yeah, I think that worldview is one of the most important facets of being human. You have to have a way to ro- orient yourself to the world around you. You interact with people, with objects, with situations, and you have to have a way of orienting yourself. And some worldviews are very healthy, allowing you to orient yourself in a very productive, rational manner. And some worldviews are very destructive, where the way you're orienting yourself is you're going to become hostile and paranoid and have all sorts of adverse psychological reactions. And I think we have to develop more healthy worldviews, especially in this interconnected world where we have all different kinds of people and uh, interaction. We have to move more toward a worldview of global humanity just out of pure necessity and because that is the reality of the world we're living in today, that the world is so interconnected that we are truly a global family in this 21st century. You know, I've had the privilege of, ta- of doing interviews with people all over the, the world, and it's been very enlightening for me. And, I be- and, you know, the bottom line is we're all the same. Right. You know, if you scratch us, we all bleed. You know, I'm a little concerned about some of the attitudes we develop. Maybe in school, I don't know exactly where it comes from, you know, this idea of it's us against them. And it doesn't really matter who the us is or who them are. You know, we're prepared to fight them. Right. And, you know, I don't know whether this is because we have so much competition in sports or, or what. But if we started thinking about how can we help them, it seems it would make a tremendous difference. Yeah, that's a really good point. I think it's about seeing nuances where, you know, people are complex and... When you look at any large group of people, you always see exceptions. And, you know, you might look at somebody. I mean, I'll give you extreme examples. You look at um, the Nazis. I mean, you look at von Stauffenberg. Von Stauffenberg, he's the guy who tried to kill Hitler. And von Stauffenberg, you know, he was a conscientious person. He he, he truly believed Hitler's propaganda. He, Hitler was saying he's a man of peace and he's going to protect Germany. He's going to create a better Europe for everybody. And Stauffenberg was a hardcore Nazi. And then when Stauffenberg found out about the Holocaust, Stauffenberg, he realized, he goes, I have to kill Hitler. I mean, this is completely, I can't believe Hitler's doing this. And there were a lot of Nazi commanders. They believed Hitler's lies. They thought that he was doing what was best for Germany and Europe, and they found out about the Holocaust, and they realized he's a madman. And there was another guy in this documentary called Nan King, and the, Nan- the documentary Nan King is about <clears throat> the Japanese massacre of the Chinese civilians in China during World War II. The Japanese military came in and massacred these civilians, and there was a German businessman there, and he was a hardcore Nazi. He had a swastika banner, and he risked his life to protect the Chinese civilians. He refused to leave China. And he started videotaping the atrocities. And he, he said, he goes, I have to tell Hitler what's happening. Hitler would never allow civilians to be killed. I have to let Hitler know what th- what's happening. Hitler, if Hitler knows that this atrocity is happening, that civilians are being killed, Hitler is going to put a stop to this. And this was, I think, 1937, 1938. And he went back to Germany and showed the videotape. The Gestapo told him, don't ever talk about it again. But you can see how conscientious people can be fooled. fooled. And I offer those extreme examples because we see a lot of peace activists 
dehumanizing and demonizing Republicans. Republicans are all a bunch of evil, crazy warmongers. But if I can offer an example of von Stauffenberg, I mean, von Stauffenberg, he's a, he tried to stop Hitler. He died trying to stop Hitler. People regard Stauffenberg as a, as a hero. But if someone like him can be fooled, you know, he had a conscience. If the guy in Nanking could be fooled, maybe there are conscientious people from many different backgrounds. And if you look at people from the KKK, I think Martin Luther King Jr. saw them and said, you know, these people are living in poverty. There's deeper issues that are causing... Martin Luther King Jr. realized that poverty has a way of turning poor people against each other. When you have poverty, you're going to have poor white people turning on poor black people. And I think you have Martin Luther King Jr., and these people are trying to kill him, and he's not demonizing them. You have Nelson Mandela. He's in prison for 27 years, and he's not trying to demon. He's not demonizing his white prison yeah. guards, and he's able to win their hearts and minds. You have Gandhi not demonizing the British, and he's able to win many of them over to his cause. And I think that is the most effective way, not killing your opponent, but winning over as many as possible in order to push your cause forward. I couldn't agree with you more. In your book... You talk, you, you talk about muscles, and I thought this was so wonderful. You know, the muscle of hope, of empathy, of appreciation. Why did you take that route, using you know, m- muscles to make your point? Yeah, I think muscle is the most accurate metaphor I can think of to represent what empathy is, hope is, appreciation is, conscience, reason, discipline, curiosity. People think of those things as these static entities. And the best example might be empathy, where people don't think about empathy as something you have to cultivate and strengthen and practice and use, like a muscle. And the more you use it, the stronger it gets. The more you train it, the stronger it gets. The less you use it, it'll begin to atrophy. And same thing with hope, same thing with appreciation. And I think that these are faculties of the human brain, like language, that you have to strengthen and cultivate. And I think the fact that our society doesn't recognize these things as faculties it creates a lot of problems in how human beings are developed in our culture. You know, it makes me think of the Native Americans saying, you know, don't judge a man until you've walked a mile in his moccasins. Right. You know, if you really know what people are going through, um, who they are, what they love, what they are having to deal with, it would be really hard to go to war with them. Right. Uh, it's, you know... There are a number of people who call themselves empaths who can feel what other people feel, and you know it, it gets a little tough sometimes when you're feeling other people's pain, and that's what you're saying in a great in a great extent is you you've got to know who these people are, and if we know who you know some of the Iraqi citizens are, if we if we can feel their fear and feel their pain, we'd have a different look at them. Right. Uh, and go ahead. Oh, absolutely. And every war in history, without exception, has had to use dehumanization. There's never been a war in human history where both sides saw each other as human. And if you look at most problems, I mean, think about most human pro- problems. Think about most social problems, sexism, racism, genocide, war, um, uh, segregation, oppression, injustice. Most human problems come from lack of empathy and some sort of dehumanization. Well, we get you know we get the wrong information, just like you talked about disinformation in the in the Second World War. I was a kid in the Second World War, not right. a very big kid, and I still remember it. 
And I remember how we talked about the Japanese and about the the Germans. I mean, some they deserved some of it, realistically. But you know, we were taught how absolutely evil they were, and there wasn't one good one, and that totally wasn't true. Right. You know, we just, but that's what we that's what we heard. That's what we saw. And yeah, you know, I still have to be aware of my own thinking because that teaching was so powerful, so pervasive back in that war. Right. And we've done it pretty much in every war. We hear how horrible we the 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 enemy is. So when when we grow up with those kind of uh, total misguided ideas. How do you start waging peace? I just want to comment on what you said about everyone on the other side being evil. Um, the historian Jonathan Tuchel, he's the head of the German Resistance Memorial Center. He said that during World War II, it's estimated that between twenty and thirty thousand non-Jewish German citizens actively hid Jews from the Nazis. So tw- between 20 and 30,000 non-Jewish German citizens were hiding Jews from the Nazis. Then he says, considering there were you know, four million people, around 4 million people in the Berlin area, that's a really small number. I mean, that's way less right. than 1%. So it's not like, I mean, way less than 1% of Germans were hiding Jews from the Nazis. But 20 to 30,000 people, that is a lot of people. And so it's hard to, and you know, do you have a lot of people who didn't know the Holocaust was happening? You had people who were fooled by Hitler, and you had some really violent, sadistic, immoral people in the Nazi Party and in the German population. But you can't just generalize all the people no. who are like that when a fraction of those people are able to manipulate the masses and do incredibly horrendous things. Yeah, I was I was getting it from a child's point of view. Because I didn't know anything else. You know, I had no background in history. I basically had no background. I was a little tiny kid. Right. And those were the impressions we were given. And we had, you know, drills, you know, against attack. What would we do if the Germans bombed us or the Japanese bombed us? And, you know, it was um, very impressive. Yeah. <laughs> Not positively so, but still very impressive. Um, and with that thought, it's time for us to go to break. We'll come back on a happier note, and we're going to talk about waging peace sure. when we come back. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Paul Chappelle, saying, please stay tuned. We'll be right back. We're making it easier to listen to the World Talk Radio Network live wherever you go on iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market. Hi, this is Rochelle and Jeff from Travel Hub Radio with another Travel Hub tip. You're late for your flight and there is a long line at the security checkpoint. What can you do as a traveler to improve time and efficiency and make your flight quickly? One idea is to take everything out of your pockets, such as sunglasses, cell phones, PDAs, pagers, and other metal and electronic objects. Put them in an easily accessible pocket on your carry-on luggage. If security asks you to display or operate these items, they're right there. 
Plus, you won't hold up the line when you have to do the walk. A metal belt buckle or a wristwatch is usually not a problem, but be aware of them and ready to remove them quickly if needed. Wear comfortable shoes that can be quickly slipped off and on if you are asked to remove them. Most of all, if the security personnel give you specific directions or ask you a question, don't argue. Just comply and cooperate. It's not personal. They're just doing their job. For traveling tips and much more, make sure you tune into Travel Hub Radio or listen to the show archives and podcast right here on World Talk Radio and at TravelHubRadio.com. The World Talk Radio Variety Channel, where the world comes to listen and talk. You are tuned in to the Self Improvement Show with your host, Dr. Irene Conlon. Got a question for Irene or her guests? Call into our live show at 1 866 613 1612. That's 1 866 613 1612. Connect with Irene via email. Our address is the Self Improvement Blog at gmail.com. Now, let's get back to the Self Improvement Show. Here again is Dr. Irene Conlon. Welcome back to the Self-Improvement Show. This is Irene Conlon with my guest, Paul Chappelle. We've been talking about Peaceful Revolution and his book that's been recently published by that title. We've been talking about war. Uh, we've been talking about some of the ideas in his book. But let's talk a little bit now, Paul, about waging peace. In fact, you're writing a book about waging peace. What can we do? What can I do as an older citizen or my son who's, you know, kind of in the middle? You know, what can we teach our grandson? What can we as people do to help you wage peace? Yeah, something I write a lot about, and it's hard to sum up in a few words what we can do, because there is so much we can do, and because, you know, it's almost like, when I think I think the people do want to know in short terms what we can do, but I think it's complex because if you were to ask somebody, you know, what can I do to paint? What can I do to sculpt? What can I do to play music? And those are art forms, just as waging peace is an art form. There's no simple way to explain to people how to. No, you I that. and I know there and, isn't. And, and, but... and that's a very common. I'm really glad you asked that question. I'm really glad you asked that question because that is a very common question. But I think that um, the simple answer I can give, and again, it's a really good question, is people could go to our website, read what I've written, uh, become more aware, learn about these concepts, and I write about things that people can do. And I think if they could work together with uh, with us, find ways of working together with us, that could also that collaboration is a key, I think, for solving these problems. Oh, I totally agree yeah. with you. Yeah, and, and to me, I think one of the most important things is to keep an open mind. You know, we form mental images of other people just because of what we hear on the radio or see in the media, what we pick up. You know, it, it was so interesting to me, um, after all, some of the things we hear here in Arizona because we're, we, have a, you know, we have a problem um, with the influx of non-citizens. Right, and you know sometimes we're inclined to go a little negative on that idea. But I went to Mexico. My brother lived down there in in the Baja Peninsula, and I fell in love with the Mexican people. I mean, I absolutely 
fell in love with their gentleness, their family orientation. Everything about them was nice. And and it was a surprise to me because I had only seen um, the other side and haven't really had a chance to be involved in their community, which is too bad. I should have been. I should have been. And I'm sure that we do that with a lot of different cultures. So, you know, if we can keep an open mind, maybe even go further and keep an open heart, um, it seems that we're well on our way to to waging some peace. Right, absolutely. But specifically, what, what... you know what needs to be done if if people would read your book and and read about the muscles and, and you know it's inner work basically you know I, and and I the the thing that came to my mind was that song let there be peace on earth and let it begin with me that's the only line I know and I sing it over and over because it says it doesn't it right oh, your book is heart changing as much as idea changing yeah well I think at this point what people really need most because it's going to be a long struggle. I think what people need, need most is hope. And that is the first step, is giving people hope. And so often people go to a peace talk or they watch a documentary about peace or they read a book about peace, and afterward they get so depressed they want to slit their throat. I mean, <laughs> it, I mean, it, it's really depressing to hear about peace because it's so negative and the world's going to hell in a handbasket. And there's a saying in the Army that, that a human being can survive for a few weeks without food a few days without water, but only a few moments without hope. And I think creating that foundation of hope is the first step we have to take. And I think people have to be fed with hope. And people crave hope like they crave food and water. And where are they going to find hope? We don't get it from TV news. Right. Well, when I give talks or when I write, one of my main objectives is to provide hope and to feed people with hope. And I think that that can sustain people for the long haul and for this very difficult work. And once we have the foundation of hope, we can build a lot upon that. But I kind of see that as the first hope, the first step. And I try to write a lot about reasons to be hopeful that are very realistic and practical and not wishy-washy or naive by any means. Give us a few of those reasons for hope. Well, I'm, I mean, a very apparent reason is I'm half Korean, a quarter white, and a quarter black, and I grew up in Alabama. You're a, you're, you're a yes. woman. You're a woman, and we're having this conversation. Could you imagine two hundred years ago? This would oh, have been completely no. impossible. I, I I'd have been a slave. You wouldn't have been able to speak in public or own property or have an education. So two hundred years ago, what you and I are doing now would have been completely impossible. And it's almost so hard for us to imagine how the world was back then. We completely take all this progress for granted. Actually, we don't even have to go back that far. Exactly. We don't have to go back that far. We don't have to go back that far. And that's a perfect, perfect example. And that's one amongst many different examples. But that's just, just, to me, the the immediate most apparent example is just the fact that you and I are even talking about this is pretty inspiring. And when we don't recognize that progress, it takes away our energy to continue to make change. And it's very disrespectful to all the people who work so hard so that you and I could be here today. Susan B. Oh, Anthony and all these people who worked so hard so you and I could have this conversation. It's very disrespectful to them not to recognize how far we've come. 
Oh, we've come such a long ways. And I think that we can look to the Internet for a great, you know, with a great deal of hope because we can talk to people anywhere in the world now. Right. You know, people from all over the globe listen to this show. They see the self-improvement blog. You know, it, it blows me away. Right. I, I, but isn't that such a great source of hope? Oh, absolutely. And I want to add one more thing. We have a long way to go. As a country yeah. and as a species, we have a long way to go. There's a lot of problems in our world. But I'm saying we've come a long way. We have an extremely long way to go. But if we've come so far, why can't we keep going in a positive direction? Maybe 200 years from now, people will look back. Maybe 30 years from now, people will look back and say, oh, my goodness, can you believe those people back then did all those insane things, killing people and bombing people? Yeah. And so we have a long way to go. There are certainly problems in the world. But I take hope from the fact that we've come so far. And if we've come this far, why can't we keep going in a positive direction? Maybe we're halfway there along the path. And maybe the next half is going to be just as groundbreaking as the past um, changes that have given you and I these opportunities today. And I usually ask, what thought do you want to leave with our audience today? And I would say that you just did leave the perfect thought. When will your new book be published, Paul? Probably, I'm almost finished with it. Um, it'll probably be out, though, spring 2014. We will watch for it. We will uh, have hope that people read it. Um, next week's guest is Dr. Larry Deutsch, who will discuss the four simple rules of weight loss. Um, and I want to encourage you to listen, but I also want to encourage you to get Paul's book, read it, let him hear from you, become a part of the solution and not part of the problem. Paul, thank you so much for being with us today. Oh, thank, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. Thank you so it much. It was certainly my pleasure. Oh. This is Irene Conlon and my guest Paul Chappelle saying thank you for being with us today. We hope you'll come back again next thank week. Thank you. Thank you again for joining Dr. Irene Conlon for the Self-Improvement Show. Please listen again next Thursday at 3 p.m. Eastern Time, 12 noon Pacific Time on the World Talk Radio Variety Channel. Remember that improvement out there starts in here. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the World Talk Radio Network. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit worldtalkradio.com, the World Talk Radio Network.